You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on explorer and traveler Freya Stark. I have one note for today, and that is there is a map of the region Stark traveled to on our website, explorerspodcast.com. That is it for notes. Let us move on. Last time, Stark had gone into the mountains of northern Persia and returned with the story of her search for the Valley of the Assassins. This was where the Order of Assassins had been founded, and while Stark wasn't the first to reach the valley, she documented its location thoroughly, including her investigation of the two assassins' fortresses, Alamut Castle and Nevisar Shah. Stark had returned to the praise of everyone, including British intelligence. It turns out that her map-making skills were first-rate, and they were thrilled at the detailed maps she had brought back with her, which were far better than anything they possessed. It was on this expedition that Stark had truly found her passion. She loved traveling and exploring, and she found freedom in the mountains and amongst the people she encountered. She was really good with the native people. She spoke their language and was patient, courteous, and observant. It allowed her to connect with the natives like few other outsiders were able to do. Also, she published some stories about her travels, which drew the attention of the Royal Geographical Society in London. They were impressed by what she had accomplished, and they were now sponsoring her return journey to Persia. By the end of June 1931, Stark was back in Baghdad. Her intention was to return to Persia and go searching for the lost assassin fortress of Lamsar, which no European had ever been to. It was thought to be in the Shah Rood Valley, west of the Valley of the Assassins. Stark's plan was to head back to Kozvin, where she had launched her previous expedition, and head into the mountains to find the fortress. Now, Stark was returning to the Middle East with the support of the Royal Geographical Society. This was a pretty big deal. No organization in the world linked to exploring had more influence and clout than the society. This meant that doors were now open for Stark into the circle of European elites wherever she went. In Baghdad, she found herself invited to dinners and breakfasts and parties. Stark loved the attention and the support it offered. We will find that Stark was never shy about accepting stuff from people. Trips, dinners, lodging, Stark jumped at such things. She was, after all, not rich. In fact, she was just getting by financially. Thus, she adored the perks of her growing fame and notoriety. People loved to associate with Stark, who was seen as eccentric and a bit scandalous, a perfect person to have at a dinner party. Anyhow, things were going pretty well for Stark until typhoid broke out in Baghdad. Her friend, Captain Vivian Holt of British Intelligence, warned her to leave the city ASAP or get trapped in the quarantine he was organizing. Thus, without delay, she hopped on a plane to Hamadan in Persia, 
without even saying goodbye to Holt. Hamadan was about halfway between Baghdad and Kazvin. After arriving there, she arranged a ride to the latter city. In Kazvin, Stark organized her expedition. She wanted to hire Aziz, her guide from the previous year, but he was unavailable due to a family illness. She would thus settle for Ismail, who had been an assistant muleteer under Aziz. The decision was not the best one, as Stark did not fully trust Ismail. She thought he was not very bright and lamented his filthy appearance. She said that he reeked of stale cheese. Stark and Ismail departed on mules at the beginning of August. They had with them all the necessary supplies for their journey, including a medical kit. This included quinine, which was used to fight malaria. The region they were heading into, the Shahrud Valley, was known to be a hotspot of malaria at this time of year. Stark had reached the Shahrud on her previous expedition, but had then followed the Alamut River into the Valley of the Assassins. Lamsar Castle was said to exist west, down the Shahrud, and in the valley of the same name. This area had been covered in snow on Stark's last visit, which had prevented her company from trying to reach the Lost Fortress. Now, Stark was not following the same route as the last journey. For that one, she had gone northwest to the Shahrud. This time, Ismail would lead her directly north. The larger area Stark was heading into was known as the Rudbar, and her ultimate goal was Lamsar Castle. As no European had ever been to the castle, to find it would be a great prize for Stark. A couple of notes about Lamsar Castle and the Order of Assassins. The Mongols had invaded the region in 1253, and Alamut Castle had fallen in 1256. Lamsar was the largest of the assassin fortresses, and it refused to surrender to the Mongols. However, cholera broke out in the fortress, greatly reducing the defenders' numbers. This forced the castle's garrison to surrender in January of 1257. The survivors were all executed and the fortress destroyed. Lamsar Castle was thus lost to history. Stark and Ismail and their mules struck out to the north, heading across rice fields and salt marshes. Before them were the mountains of northern Persia. Around them, the lands were parched in the hot summer sun. They passed through fields of corn and saw farmers tending cattle and sheep. The first village they reached was Rashtikin. It was so dry there was only a single patch of green grass in the village. The mules had to be kept away so they wouldn't eat the grass. From Rashtikin, the two travelers continued north, the elevation going up and up. Eventually, they reached Lali Chak, the pass into the mountains. Stark and Ishmael crossed the pass and found themselves in the Sharu Valley. The great mountain, Taki Suleiman, Solomon's throne or the throne of Solomon, could be seen in the distance to the east. It was at this time that Stark, who had gone ahead from Ishmael, encountered three men working in the fields. They moved to intercept her and stood on the trail holding sickles, which can look pretty menacing. Stark had learned a long time ago from the Druze in Syria how to approach such a situation. When she got close enough to be heard, she called out to the three men, saying in Persian, Peace be upon you. The men replied in unison, Upon you be peace. This was a perfect example of how Stark's willingness to learn the customs of the native people, their religion, and their language had paid off handsomely. With one sentence, she had established a rapport with these strangers. With those words, she said she was not a threat, but a traveler and friend. This was not unlike the travels of a recent subject we covered on this show, Ibn Battuta. Ibn Battuta had safely traveled through three different continents. A big reason for his success was that he and the people he encountered were linked by the customs and religion of Islam. Maybe they had different languages, but the link of Islam transcended so many things. That exact thing was now happening for Freya Stark. The men, by the way, were not Persians, but Kurds. They had their own language, but also spoke and understand Persian. They were from a nearby village called Merg. 
When Stark asked about Lamsar, one of the men pointed across the Shah Rood and said, quote, Lamasar is there, end quote. Stark was thrilled at the news. The men took her and Ismail to Merg, a friendly village consisting of about 20 houses. The local town headman, Rustam Khan, and his wife offered Stark their home for the night. The Kurds, like most everyone Stark encountered, were fascinated by Freya. They told her stories about their lands and asked her a million questions about her home. They said a British man had come through here a few years earlier, mapping the area. They were surprised to find that Arabic was not the native language of the British, as that was the only language he had spoken to them. The people also told Stark about how the region was brutally cold in the winters, so cold that even the wolves did not bother them. But now, in August, it was hot, even up in the mountains. For that reason, Stark was given a spot on the roof of the house, where she slept with her host and hostess. The next day, Rustam Khan took Stark to the ruins of Kestinlar, a minor assassin castle. She found there wasn't much left of the place other than bits of an outer wall. The party, with Rustam Khan as a guide, next brought them down into the valley, where they reached the Sharud and the village of Shahadast. The river was high, and they had to cross one of the few bridges that actually existed. The bridge, however, was in poor shape, and each of the mules were unloaded and walked across one at a time, for fear the bridge would collapse. Thankfully, they made it over without incident. Stark found the Sharud Valley to be beautiful. The locals grew cotton, rice, tobacco, fruit, and vegetables. There were no roads, just rough trails. The downside to the region were the mosquitoes. They were everywhere, and Ismail complained that the region was infested with malaria. Stark began to take quinine as a preventative measure. Stark and Ismail were led northwest up the Shah Rood. They found themselves hugging the sides of steep red cliffs on a trail so narrow the mules nearly had to be left behind. It was hot and the mosquitoes were brutal. The travelers reached a small village of about a dozen houses on a river cliff surrounded by cornfields named Imin Muhammad. Stark's gaze was directed to the north. Using her field binoculars, she got a look at a rock that the locals identified as Lamsar. Stark was thrilled. Her destination was only a day away. The locals told her that they knew a route to the top via a large sloping rock. The local shepherds would bring their flocks up to Lamsar to graze in the summer months. An old man who was unnamed by Stark volunteered to lead the party. The next day, Stark headed up a minor tributary of the Sharud, called Nyarud, reaching a small village named Sharistan. Lamsar was only a few miles away, but it was a steep climb. And so, up the slope people and mules went. As they did so, they encountered a man who gave them some figs. He elected to join the company on their trek to the top of the rock. At one point, the slope grew so steep, they were forced to unpack the mules and leave them behind. Freya Stark would continue on and head up the slope of a blackish rock to the western gate of a ruined fortress, Lamsar Castle. She began to explore and was thrilled by what she found. Lamsar sat on a rocky outcrop and occupies a large area, nearly 500 by 200 meters, or 1,600 by 650 feet. The walls were impressive, 1.2 meters, or 4 feet, thick. It stood on a rounded slope, which was at a 30-degree angle. Like Alamut Castle to the east, it was a windswept and desolate place. Stark immediately began to document everything, including taking photos, something she knew would be important to the Royal Geographical Society. There were ruins of towers, gates, walls, and other fortifications. Another thing she took extensive notes on were the cisterns of Lamsar, 15 of them in total. There was an intricate system that connected many of the cisterns, which prevented them from overflowing. It was impressive to see such a sophisticated engineering feat in such a desolate place. Stark also examined the pottery pieces, thousands of them lay everywhere, and found them from the 12th and 13th centuries, 
indicating that no one had occupied the fortress since the time of the assassins. The only modern things she found were a few simple shelters erected by the shepherds who came up here with their flocks. In the ruins of an old vaulted room, Stark heated up some water and shared a meal with her party. It was then that another man appeared out of nowhere and sat down with the group. The newcomer, along with the other local men, proceeded to tell Stark about Lamsar and other places in the region. She was intrigued when they told her about sacred shrines, often out in the middle of nowhere. By the way, Ismail tried to discourage everyone from telling Stark about castles and ruins and shrines and hidden valleys, as he wanted to avoid going out on any unnecessary journeys. He just wanted to be away from this malaria-stricken region. With her exploration and documentation of Lamsar complete, Stark departed the assassin's stronghold and returned to the Sharud Valley. She now had to decide on her next adventure. And that leads us to Taki Suleiman, the throne of Solomon or Solomon's throne. This is a mountain to the east of the Valley of the Assassins. It is more than 15,000 feet high, or 4,600 meters, and towers over the area. The legend behind the mountain is that an aging King Solomon married Belkis, the young and beautiful Queen of Sheba, but he could not get her to sleep with him. Thus, he set up a tent on the top of a mountain, reputedly the coldest place on earth. He took the queen there, and when she got too cold, she finally came to his bed. The next morning, Solomon touched the rocky slope of the mountain, and a warm spring emerged, remaining to this day. No one in recorded history had ever climbed Solomon's throne, and Freya Stark thought it would be really cool to do so. She had, after all, climbed the Matterhorn in the Alps, which was nearly 15,000 feet high. It would be quite the tale to make such an ascent. And so Stark and Ismail headed east along the Shah Rood. The plan was to reach the spot where the Element River went into Element Valley. They would then head into the valley and rest and recuperate before continuing east to Taki Suleiman. However, even before leaving, Stark was not feeling well. She developed a fever and her heart began to beat irregularly. Thus, she sent Ismail back to Kosvin to procure some medicine, Digitalis. Stark waited in a village for five days. By the time Ismail returned, her temperature had dropped. She had considered abandoning the expedition, but with her health improving and the Digitalis, she decided to push forward. She was going to make a go at Solomon's throne after all. Everything went according to plan for a few days. Stark and Ismail followed the Sharud, then entered Alamut Valley. However, as they went, Stark began to feel sick again. In the valley, they reached the village of Shutar Khan, which was not far from Alamut Castle. Here, Stark could go no further. She was shivering and perspiring uncontrollably. She had dysentery. She knew the symptoms. She had seen them in far too many people. It was malaria. Stark grew delirious and got so weak, she did not have the strength to give herself a shot of quinine. She was sure she was going to die. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hey, explorers, it's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. 
from explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. In the shadow of the Rock of Alamut, Freya Stark knew she needed help. She couldn't administer herself any medicine due to her shivering and delirium. She needed a doctor, but she knew from past experience that there was not one in Alamut Valley. However, Stark was in for a bit of luck. It seems that this time there was a doctor in the area. He was a five-hour ride away. Ismail got on his donkey and went in search of the man on Stark's orders. Ismail would return with the doctor, a young Persian man who remains nameless in Stark's book, just known as the Doctor. He had been born in the valley, but now lived on the Caspian Sea shore. He had returned to the valley with his baby daughter to move her to a more mild climate, as the heat was threatening her health. The doctor, who was neatly dressed in European fashion, quickly diagnosed her with malaria and dysentery, which were, he said, quote, diseases we are used to. End quote. He then proceeded to inject Stark with doses of camphor, emetine, and quinine. Stark was a bit alarmed by the amount she was given, saying the quinine shot was three times the recommended dosage, but she decided the local doctor knew best. She would take all of the medicine, but pass on his offer of morphine. The doctor then said they would go to his village where he would nurse her back to health. Before departing, Stark was reunited with old friends, including the guide from her last expedition, Aziz, who had come from his home in Garmrud. He would help bring her to the doctor's village, Balarud. The ride down the valley was a painful one for Freya Stark. She was propped up on a mule and led along the trail east. Several times she passed out in the saddle as she was so delirious. After three hours, the caravan stopped in the village of Zavarak, the largest in Alamut Valley. After a rest, they continued on for three more hours to Balarud. The small village was on no map, and Stark had to ride her mule up a zigzagging trail for an hour and a half to reach it. Here, Stark was given a place to recover. The doctor visited her several times a day for six days, each time administering air quinine to aid in her recovery. The doctor, she noted, was a sad and lonely man. He was stuck in a place surrounded by malaria, dysentery, and typhoid. Death was all around him. And he was always frustrated by a lack of medicine and tools, which were hard to acquire in this remote area. It didn't help that the local people rarely came to him for aid, and then only as a last resort. Their distrust of modern medicine, he told her, had caused too many deaths. The doctor smoked opium to alleviate what Stark called a melancholy fatalism. The doctor noted Freya's disapproval of the habit, saying, quote, I disapprove myself, but I do it all the same, end quote. Stark spent six days in Balarud before being collected by Aziz to move on to his home in Garmrud. The people of the village came out to see Stark off, including the doctor, who said, quote, Do not forget me, we shall never meet again. End quote. Aziz took Stark to Garmru to stay with his family. She was also reunited with the refuge of Allah, who had helped bring her to Alamut Valley on her previous expedition. The refuge of Allah's actual name, we learn this time, was Hajat Allah. He was described as a simple and devoted man. Stark praises him for his hard work, saying he, quote, would walk with the mule's halter in his hand from 3 a.m. to midnight and still be ready to perform every sort of service. End quote. 
He never complained, always helped out, always worked hard. The refuge of Allah and Aziz would go with Stark and Ismail when they departed the valley, much to Stark's relief. She simply did not trust Ismail. Stark would continue to recuperate, her health getting better and better by the day. While in Garmrud, she plotted her next steps. She considered returning to Kazvin, but as her health improved, the thought of climbing the throne of Solomon grew more powerful. At this time, she enjoyed her stay in the valley. She reconnected with others she had met on the previous expedition, including Aziz's eight-year-old son, Mohammed, who had almost died on the previous journey to the valley. And she enjoyed the sights, even experiencing three weddings in one day. She detailed the wedding ceremonies and dancing and customs. Stark, Aziz, the Refuge of Allah, and Ismail departed Garmud on August 23rd. They rode their mules past Nevisar Shah, the ruins of the assassin castle that had once guarded this end of the valley. It was then out of Alamut Valley and through the Salambar Pass. Their destination was Solomon's throne. At this point, the expedition turned north and then east, Stark entering new territory. Soon she had out her compass and was back to being a geographer. The four explorers went through fields, crossed over hills and ridges, forded streams, and explored old forts, now just mounds of stone. Their elevation varied between seven and 12,000 feet, or 2,100 to 3,600 meters. The lands became more wild, and the party more isolated with each step. Eventually, they came to an area that consisted of three villages. They passed through the first, Cern, a place with only ten houses. The second, Shuristan, was twice as large. The people were poor, and despite being wary of newcomers, they were fascinated by Freya Stark. She said, quote, They rushed to me as if I were a circus. End quote. They wanted to know all about her. Things like, why wasn't she married? Was she even really a woman? They told Stark stories about the mountains, including Solomon's throne. They were now just three or four days away from climbing the Great Peak. Stark was also told that at the next village, Derijan, there was a Hungarian engineer and his Greek wife. The engineer was in the era to develop, meaning exploit, the region's mineral wealth on behalf of the Shah. Also, a couple of hours from Derijan was a place called Abi Garm, a.k.a. the Queen of Sheba's Bath. These were the area's famed hot springs. Remember the story we talked about regarding King Solomon? Well, in that story, it was said that he struck the rocks of the mountain and warm water poured out, allowing the queen to take a bath. Well, here you go. Stark and her company continued on to Derijan, a village of 40 houses. There she met the Greek wife of the Hungarian engineer, neither of whom was given a name in Stark's account. The engineer was off working, but the wife was thrilled to have someone else to speak with other than the locals. She hated Persia. She complained that much of their luggage had been lost in a storm in the mountains, including their cognac, which had been swept away when a bridge collapsed. Stark was not impressed by the woman, who she said talked incessantly. Still, she would meet with the woman at the hot springs, a two-hour ride away. There Freya got her first real bath in nearly a month. She said that she stayed for much too long in the springs, and thus fell a bit ill from the sulfur and iron in the water. But after weeks of dust and dirt, a hot bath was probably a gift from the heavens, or Solomon. And speaking of the legendary king, Stark had come to the foot of his mountain. It was now time to try and reach its peak. Stark was thrilled at the idea. The mountaintop was at about 15,000 feet, while Stark and her party would have to begin their attempt around 9,000 feet, so a 6,000-foot ascent. She judged it would take about 10 hours. A guide was arranged, a man called a shikari, which means hunter. Shikari, by the way, is his title, not his name. Stark never gives us the man's name. No matter, with luck, he would bring in meat as wild goats, ibex, roam the mountains. The party departed at 7.30 in the morning, and while Stark was confident, we can't forget that she was still recovering from malaria. To try and ascend a mountain the height of Solomon's throne 
was not the wisest decision, ironic considering whose mountain she was trying to climb. No matter, the company descended to the Mian Rood and followed a stream that circled to the northern side of the mountain, looking for a route to take the mules up towards the peak. The expedition came to a halt, allowing the Shikari guide to scout ahead and look for game. He was gone for hours, and Stark was concerned he'd absconded with her binoculars. She eventually ordered the party onward, getting advice from the local shepherds. The Shikari eventually rejoined the company, and they set up camp for the night. He had not been able to bag an ibex. The next day, the company went up higher and higher, following zigzagging trails, often so steep the mules had to be led by hand. As Stark and her team got to 12,000 feet and higher, the effects of the thin mountain air began to take a toll on her. She struggled to breathe and grew fatigued. She had been to heights of more than 15,000 feet in Europe, but not after recovering from malaria. It grew so difficult, Stark was placed on a mule when they could ride one and led onward a man on each side of her to keep her from tumbling off. When Stark had to walk, she could barely do 50 paces before she was forced to stop and rest. Her last altitude measurement put Stark and her party at around 14,000 feet. They could see the top of Solomon's throne, a little more than a thousand feet above them. But here, Stark had to stop. She could not physically go on. Plus, the trail they were following ended. There was no obvious way to ascend the remaining thousand feet. Freya Stark's attempt to become the first European to climb Taki Suleiman was thus over. That said, the story doesn't quite end there, and that is because in the coming days, Stark would learn that she and her party had been deceived. Let me explain. It turns out that the company's guide, the Shikari, had been instructed by the Hungarian engineer to lead Stark up a more difficult trail, and one that wouldn't be able to reach the summit. The Hungarian didn't want word to reach the Shah or his representatives that a foreigner had climbed the revered mountain and told the Shikari that they would all be punished if it happened. As a result, the guide led them up a more difficult trail. Stark learned that there was an easier route, a mule trail that would have taken her team to, quote, within possible distance of the summit, end quote. Now, could she have actually made the ascent? We don't really know, especially with her health issues. No matter, Stark was furious with the Hungarians, saying, quote, I curse the engineer in my heart, wish him that his wife may never cease from talking, and his angles be perpetually inaccurate, end quote. No matter, the deal was done, and Stark's attempt on the summit of Taki Suleiman was over. The peak, by the way, would be climbed the following year by British mountaineer Douglas Busk. So with her climb of Solomon's throne over, Stark elected to descend into some of the more obscure valleys of the region, hoping to find something cool to add to her bag of achievements. She would tromp around hundreds of miles into valleys and villages and over mountains and across rivers. There were encounters with holy men rummaging through ancient burial sites, poking around old ruins, and all sorts of people, places, and adventures. The native people were, for the most part, desperately poor. Some came to her for medical aid. One of the more interesting things Stark found in her wanderings were bits of bronze items, such as spear tips. These were old and of great interest to her. Finding the source of such items will be part of our next episode. Stark and her team would loop around the region and head south, following the Upper Shaw Rood for a while, which had never been mapped and then they emerged out of the mountains and foothills southeast of Kozvin and north of Tehran. They reached the Shah's road, where a ride to Tehran for herself and Aziz was secured. The refuge of Allah would lead the mules to the city on foot. In Tehran, Stark handed over her maps to British intelligence. They were outstanding, again, and far better than anything that existed. Next, she said goodbye to her companions and headed back to Baghdad. Her journey for now was over. In Baghdad, Stark was again welcomed back by the international community. 
She had a million stories to tell, thrilling everyone. On a sad note, Stark found a message from Canada waiting for her with news that her father had died. She briefly considered setting off for North America, but quickly dismissed the idea. She lamented not spending more time with her father the previous year, but understood that there was nothing else she could do. And so Freya Stark was back from yet another adventure. She had found Lamsar, the lost fortress of the assassins, and she had mapped hundreds of miles of some of the most rugged terrain in all of Persia. She could easily head back to London or Italy and write a book and some articles about her travels. But Stark's Persian adventures were not quite complete. In Baghdad, she had noticed bronze relics for sale in shops. These were old and valuable. This included jewelry, pottery, and other items, some two and three thousand years old. And she had found bits of such things on her wanderings in northern Persia. Many of these items, reportedly, came from graves in western Persia, Luristan. Luristan is the region west of Baghdad over the Zagros Mountains. This was one of the least known provinces in Persia. It was rugged and mountainous and filled with bandits. The Shah and his police were the nominal authority in the area, but in reality it was the local Lurish princes called Atabegs who held sway. For Stark, this was another golden opportunity. To go into a place that no European had ever ventured was exactly what she desired. Dangers be damned. Her goal was to go into the region and find some of these bronzes and bring back a proper scientific description of the graves they were found in. By the way, if you are wondering if she had any qualms about looting graves, she did not. She told herself it was all for science. Anyhow, this is where I will wrap up things for today. Next time, we will finish our series on Freya Stark. She has lots more adventures, including two excursions into Luristan, as well as two trips into Yemen. But know that we will tell these stories at sort of a high level. And that's because I think you now understand how Freya Stark operated. She'll head off into the mountains with a guide or two, charm local officials when needed, befriend skittish tribesmen and villagers, and dodge death here and there. No matter, we will talk about all of these adventures, plus take a look at the critical work she did in World War II to help Great Britain retain control of the Middle East. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed our story. I want to wrap up today by saying thank you to everyone who helps out by supporting the show. I mean, just listening to the podcast helps it survive and grow. So thank you for enduring the ads and spreading the word to friends and family and on social media. But I also want to mention that you can help out by offering nice reviews and ratings for the show. This is primarily on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just go and give us a nice rating and say something cool about the show. That doesn't cost a thing. I want to offer a special thank you to all who help out the show financially. You can donate via PayPal directly by going to the website, explorespodcast.com. You can also help out by becoming a patron of the show, which means you give a small amount each month to help produce the podcast. You can find out more about that on the website if you are interested. It is because of the people who donate that I am able to do three shows instead of two each month. So thank you for everyone who helps out. It really does make a difference. Final thing for today. Thank you to everyone who takes the time to write me and tell me about how the show has done something special for them. I truly get some great stories. Sometimes the stories are really sweet, sometimes inspiring. I've had people tell me of their family listening to the podcast while on a road trip, or people finding inspiration in their lives by listening to the stories of those who have struggled in difficult situations. It's all wonderful stuff, so thank you for sharing. Hearing those stories really makes my job special. So that is it for today. Please take care. I will see you next time as we finish up our series on Freya Stark. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including Triviality and the Civil War podcast.
The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.